This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we're going to be talking about all things surgery. So if you think your dog or your cat is ever going to need surgery, but you're not even sure, you want to tune in. And that's because we're going to be speaking with Dr. Stephen Burchard, who's a board-certified veterinary specialist. We'll be right back after these messages. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Today, we're going to be speaking with a board-certified veterinary specialist in surgery. Now, if you guys aren't sure, a board-certified specialist is a little bit different than your typical veterinarian because we've gone through an additional internship and an additional residency and additional training. And so we don't see your typical cases. We usually see cases that were referred to from your veterinarian that are more complex. So I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Steve Burchard today, who's a board-certified veterinary surgeon. Dr. Bertrand, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Just so our audience knows who you are, do you mind giving us a little bit of background about who you are, where you trained, what you do? And also, please make sure to mention that you're an author on a dog book, a dog and cat book, I should say. That's right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've always wanted to be a vet ever since I was a little kid. I like to tell people a story of one of the things that actually inspired me to become a veterinarian was the movie Old Yeller that was produced by uh, Walt Disney back in the uh, 50s. I saw that movie, uh, I guess I was probably about eight or nine years old. And uh, it's, a, it's a great movie, but it's sad because the, the dog that's the focus of the movie gets rabies and eventually has to be put to sleep. But I, uh, when I saw that, I thought, I, this just confirms in my mind that I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a doctor to try to help animals like that. And uh, I went to um, veterinary school at the University of Missouri. I grew up in New Jersey. And of course, New Jersey doesn't have its own veterinary school. But uh, I was lucky enough to get into school at Missouri. I, after graduating, I practiced in New Jersey for two years and learned, and actually learned quite a bit. I practiced with a solo practitioner. He was his name was Dr. Jay Simmons. He, his practice was Audubon Affiliates in veterinary medicine and um, learned a lot of very practical veterinary medicine. And then uh, I was lucky enough to uh, go to Purdue to become uh, a surgical resident in small animal 
Uh, and my advisor was Dr. Ron Bright, who is, uh, to this day, I, I tell him that he really is the reason I became a surgeon, because he worked with me, he saw the potential that I could do it. And I, I always loved doing surgery, even in private practice, even just doing the routine procedures. I, I always loved it. It was, uh, it's, you know, it's something you do with your hands. People ask me, well, why would you, why would you select that specialty? Well, it's probably because I love that instant gratification of you know, a dog has a, a problem and you go in with surgery and a lot of times you can actually fix that problem right away. And the dog or the cat is immediately better. And uh, that's, that's pretty gratifying. So uh, then after uh, my residency, I went to the Animal Medical Center in New York City for two years. And that was a fantastic experience because it's such a high caseload, incredibly busy hospital, uh, an eight story tall animal hospital right in midtown Manhattan, New York City. And from there, I went to Ohio State, and that's where I spent most of my career on the faculty at uh, the College of Veterinary Medicine at Ohio State. I never thought as a Jersey boy that I would wind up spending most of my life at, in the Midwest, but I actually enjoyed it, and I, I really enjoyed my time at Ohio State and found that I just loved the teaching aspect uh, and also the clinical research. And uh, now I'm, I've retired from my position at Ohio State. I still do a little consulting. I still do a little writing. And now I've actually also written a book, not for necessarily for veterinarians and not for a publication in a referee journal or anything like that. This is more of a book for pet owners where I tell the stories of uh, animals that had life-threatening issues, either illness or injury, and just uh, how they recovered from, from that uh, adversity and how I connected myself and how I became emotionally involved with them. And as very short synopsis, that's kind of my life up to today. It. Uh, love the book. I will say, just like every veterinarian, a lot of us, you may not know, wanted to become vets since we were seven or, you know, we grew up reading James Harriet. So love the all the stories that you share. And as a veterinarian, you know, who works in the ER, you're right. I've seen a lot of these situations where dogs and cats survive so much despite what we think. Um, you know, we truly believe in the veterinary world that cats truly have nine lives because they survive so much. And, you know, I love the title, Their Tails Kept Wagging, because we've all seen those critically ill dogs and cats in the ER, um, in the ER vet or in the ICU. And despite the, the surgeries that they go through, uh, despite being sedated with pain medication, thankfully, those dogs' tails seem to work. Now, I mentioned at the beginning this ER vet episode that as board-certified specialists, we're not typical veterinarians in that we've done additional training. And, you know, it's so interesting. I did my internship decades ago at Angel Animal Medical Center. And between AMC and Angel, I think we saw the majority of uh, cases on the East Coast. And this was decades ago when internships are very, very different now. Back then, they were really, really hard, as I'm sure you remember. Sleep was for the week, apparently, back then. But, you know, we talk about the differences between veterinarians and veterinary specialists. Now, I did want to ask about surgery. So what are the most common surgeries performed by general veterinarians? And how is that different from surgeries that you do as a specialist? Yeah, I, I think the... Um Obviously, the, the major uh, procedures or in terms of numbers are the spays and neuters. That's a reflection of how we teach our students these days is that we want them to tr become competent in doing those basic procedures. Spays, neuters, dental procedures, uh, tooth removal, extractions, uh, small tumor removals, uh, taking out stones in the urinary bladder, things like that. 
those are the common procedures that most veterinarians have the facilities to do and have had enough training to do. The specialists, they're much more involved in complicated procedures, uh, correction of birth defects, taking out large tumors of the, of the body or of the in, in internal aspects of the body, such as the liver or the spleen, things like that. And also uh, a lot of the orthopedic surgeries um, are done by specialists, uh, fracture repair, repair of ligament injury to the knee, one of the most common things that uh, board certified surgeons do. But the nice thing about the specialty is that as opposed to humans, where they are so, so specialized, you know, like they'll have doctors that do nothing but kidney problems or surgeons that do nothing but operate on the hand. We still operate on a lot of different things. Like in a, in a typical day, a surgical specialist might do a thoracic procedure, a major abdominal surgery, a fracture repair, a ligament repair, and maybe even a removal of a tumor from, from the brain. Or, or some other part of the body. So it's really a fascinating specialty to be a part of because we see so many different animals with so many different uh, disorders. Now, you know, once in a while, I'll have people saying, oh, I want you to do surgery on my dog. And I'm like, oh, no, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't touch scalpels. I do it for what I call extra cavities, like outside of cavities. So like if it's a bite wound, if, you know, I need to do lance and abscess, no problem. Right, but trust right. me, even as a board certified specialist, you don't want me doing surgery in your dog. Your general veterinarian is way better at spaying and neutering because they do it so many more times. You know, they're also doing bladder surgeries to remove bladder stones. They're removing foreign bodies that may be stuck in your dog or cat's stomach or intestines. And your vet is super capable at stuff like that because they're doing that kind of stuff all the time. And again, um, with board certified specialists, they're usually doing more complex surgeries that a general veterinarians don't feel comfortable doing. So just be aware there is a difference. And I do also want to mention, please be aware you can always self-refer to a veterinary specialist. So even if it's a spay that requires something more advanced, like maybe you have a Great Dane, in previous episodes of ER Vet, we've talked all about stomach bloat or gastric dilatation volvulus, and sometimes we can prevent that. And so sometimes we advocate for Great Danes or dogs that develop this stomach bloat that they get a pexy where we sort of staple their stomach to their body wall so their stomach doesn't twist. And your vet may not feel comfortable doing that. So sometimes they may refer your dog to be spayed at a board certified specialist to also, also get pexied at the same time. So when in doubt, please know you have nothing but options. We always want you to be the best advocate you can be for your own dog or your cat or horse or bird or whatever species out there. Uh, but please be aware there's generally differences between your veterinarian and a board certified specialist. Now, you already mentioned this a little bit, but do you mind talking about the training that's required to be a specialist in surgery? Because I know it's one of the most competitive residencies to get nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. When, when I was at Ohio State, we frequently would get uh, between 100 and 150 applications for one or two uh, openings in our residency program. So it is very, very competitive. A lot of people you know, are also like me that want to be able to help an animal immediately with a surgical procedure. The training is, uh, honestly, it's pretty intense. And you know, from your background as well, that here you've, you know, you've gone, let's say anywhere from two to four years of undergraduate college, then four years of veterinary school. And uh, now to be a specialist, you've got to do uh, four more years of education. One is the internship program, 
where you rotate through all the different specialties. You're not really focused yet on one particular specialty. And then if you're lucky after your one year rotating general internship, if you're lucky, you get a residency. But a lot of interns then have to do yet a second internship where they're an intern, but they're focusing much more now on surgery. They're rotating with the different surgeons in the hospital or the university and, uh, and just taking their education up a, a little bit higher in the surgical area. And then it's a three-year residency program. And uh, the residency program is, uh, is a combination of the clinical experience where you're either with a, a staff surgeon or a faculty surgeon initially, and then eventually you transition to actually running your own clinical service. And if, it's, if you're in a university, you're also expected to do research. And the research is generally uh, something, of, obviously, of a clinical nature, but it may be looking at a series of cases uh, that hasn't been looked at before of a certain disorder and how those uh, animals turned out. Or maybe, you, maybe you're in the middle of developing a new surgical procedure and that uh, you could write a, a paper about. So these are, uh, yeah, and you do a lot of emergency work as a surgical resident, uh, as you know, and uh, that can be pretty exhausting as well. It's an intense training. And then at the end of all that, you have to take this test, which everybody dreads having to take it, but it's the test to become a board certified specialist. And that's one of the things I think important for pet owners to know is that you can't really call yourself a specialist unless you've gone through the board certification process. You've trained at a facility that is approved by the American College of Veterinary Surgeons. And then you've taken this exam, this really difficult exam. Uh, when I took it many, many years ago, it was a three-day examination. Uh, but once you pass, then you're board certified, and then you can say you're a specialist. So uh, it, it's a pretty long process and a difficult one. But at the end, you can call yourself a surgeon or an internist or a dermatologist or an emergency critical care criticalist and, that, and so forth. Yeah, I will say uh, my one-year internship and three-year residence, they were grueling. You know, it's where you work really hard, you're paid ter terrible salary, you know, and you're, I think my internship was 17000 <laughs> This is back <laughs> in the late 90s. And, you know, it's definitely a tough year, but it gives you so much amazing training, a lot of amazing memories, and definitely gives you um, the expertise out there. So it is a little vigorous, but again, most and I'm hoping most pet owners aren't going to need a specialist too much in their life. For routine stuff, you should always go to your routine family veterinarian. They know your pet best. They vaccinated your pet. They spayed or neutered them. Please work with them. But if it's ever anything more complicated, maybe your cat was diagnosed with complicated diabetes or your dog was diagnosed with a heart murmur, um, you know, that's stuff where you always have the option to consult with a board-certified veterinary specialist. Now, in a previous episode of ER Vet, when we talked specifically about why you decided to write Their Tales Kept Wagging, your book, we mm -hmm. talked about the growing cost of veterinary medicine. How much does it cost to have surgery on a dog or cat? And, you know, does it vary with what type of procedure and why is it so expensive? Right. It does. It varies a lot. Um, uh, and um, it depends on what the problem is. And, and it also depends a lot upon what equipment is necessary to do the procedure. Uh, for example, in a lot of the orthopedics, and I don't do much orthopedics, I do predominantly soft, what we call soft tissue surgery, which is everything other than orthopedics. But leading up to the surgery, there may need to be some pretty expensive diagnostic tests that are done, special blood tests, 
imaging such as CAT scan or MRI or contrast uh, images taken with the x-ray machine, or maybe even other diagnostic tests like endoscopy. For example, if your dog or cat is, has a lot of trouble vomiting and it's not due to uh, some obvious problem like a foreign body or, or some other illness, then the dog may, may need to have endoscopy where a small tube with a little camera at the end is placed down into the stomach to look at it. And that's actually something usually done by the internists, the internal medicine folks. But that may need to be necessary before we actually go in and do the surgical procedure. So it's expensive because of what the facilities that are required to do it, the staffing that's required. You know, the the surgeons, we almost always have one technician scrubbed in with us. There's one or two that are doing the anesthesia. And then there's a whole team of uh, people that are taking care of the animal after the surgery. So that's part of the expense. I would say in general, in soft tissue, uh, just as 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 a rule of thumb, probably anywhere from 35 to 4,000, maybe even up in some cases, more complicated surgery up to $5,000 for something very involved. Orthopedics, kind of similar. I think, for example, a, uh, a surgery of the knee to repair a ligament uh, on a big dog, let's say a Labrador procedure, they'll usually recommend a procedure called a TPLO, and that can cost anywhere between, say, four to $6,000. And we've talked uh, before about uh, how pet insurance can really help that. And I think that's really true of some of these major surgical procedures is uh, that if you if you decided to get insurance when they were a puppy, that can certainly help. Or just prepare yourself for, you know, as these dogs get older, one of the things we've done better is keeping dogs alive for a longer period of time. But that also means that as they get older, they're going to develop probably some issues that may require some more advanced type of care. You know, we've talked on previous episodes of ER Vet on why you should get pet insurance. And even veterinarians have pet insurance on their pets. Veterinary technicians do too. So interestingly enough, most people aren't aware of the growing costs of veterinary medicine and how it correlates to human medicine. In human medicine, you don't typically, hopefully, get a bill if you're insured for, you know, ten to $50,000 for a procedure. And that's different in veterinary medicine because most of the time uh, we're not covered by routine health insurance. And most people are shocked to know that only one to two to maybe less than 5% of pets in the United States have pet insurance. That's very different in the United Kingdom where 40% do have pet insurance for their dogs and cats. They also have country coverage for their entire country for humans. So again, a lot of pet owners, you know, when they first buy that puppy or kitten, don't think of the cumulative cost of owning a pet. You brought up ACL tears, those injuries that we can see in the knee that require pretty expensive surgeries to fix. And I always say, you know, one of the simplest things you can do as preventative care is to not let your pet get obese, right? By keeping your dog, especially if you have a Labrador Retriever, a Golden Retriever at their ideal body weight, that dramatically helps reduce osteoarthritis and the risk of a knee tear, a knee injury. And we know that dogs that have that tear in one leg, even after surgical repair, often get it in their other leg. And that becomes a $10,000 dog that's really expensive. So when in doubt, my little tip is go to the AKC website and see what your breed's weight is supposed to be. Most people don't realize a female Labrador Retriever is supposed to be 65 to 75 pounds. 
And I don't think I've ever seen in the past two decades a 70-pound Lavador, <laughs> right? So right. unfortunately, there's a growing incidence of obesity that we see. Now, you talked about surgery, and I know in your book, their tails kept wagging. A lot of the critically ill pets were there for days to weeks. After surgery, how long does a dog or cat typically have to stay in the hospital? Yeah, and that's something that I get asked a lot um, is a lot of people, and this may be because of our colleagues in human medicine, that so many things are done now as an outpatient. And we're not quite the same in what we do because we really, um, we really need to make sure the animal is going to recover properly from the procedure. For example, let's say we've had to do a, some kind of thoracic procedure maybe where the dog had a lung tumor. We had to take out a section of, of one of the lungs to remove a tumor, which actually is a fairly common thing for us to do. Well, that we certainly wouldn't want that animal to go home that same day. They're probably going to have a special tube in their chest cavity that we use to reestablish the negative pressure, make sure there's no fluid or air that's accumulating. So almost all of the dogs that have major surgery are going to at least spend that first night in the hospital. And I know that's hard for a lot of folks because they, they've they never, for the dog's whole life, they've never spent a whole night without them in the house with them. So it can be uh, something that's difficult for them. But then you have other animals with more complicated procedures. Maybe they had something that's associated with a higher complication rate. We may try to keep them even longer in the, in the hospital. Or if they presented for, let's say, a, a really severe infection, what we call septic peritonitis, because they maybe had a foreign body that caused a rupture of the stomach or the intestine. That guy, he's probably going to have to be in the hospital for several days because he'll need a lot of antibiotic care and fluids and, and uh, pain relievers and, and so forth. So it really ranges a lot and it depends a lot upon what, how complicated the illness is. But I think in general, we can make, we can, we can say confidently that they are going to have to spend at least one night or maybe a few more in the hospital. Great. Now I've experienced a dog with cancer. Um, it sounds like you have also, you know, unfortunately as our pets age, we end up seeing a higher mortality from cancer in dogs and cats. Do you mind just talking about if a dog or cat is diagnosed with cancer, will surgery help that pet? It really can. And of course, again, it really depends on the type of cancer. One of the things I, I try to impress upon people is not all cancer is the same. There's some that's very treatable and some that I would say is even curable in dogs and cats. But there is also a lot that where we can control or, or get the cancer in remission, but then eventually it's going to come back. I mean, one of the chapters in the book is about our own dog, Bob who started out with a cancer uh, underneath the skin of his front leg. You know, it started out as something that didn't look too complicated. But when we took the tumor out and sent it off for analysis by the pathologist, they said it's it not only is it cancer, it's a high grade cancer, which means it's, it's malignant and it, it's very malignant. And his prognosis with that wasn't very good because it, it's, a it's a high grade fibrosarcoma that's notorious for spreading to other parts of the body. But you know, we decided to, uh, to do everything. We, we pulled out all the stops. We did surgery. We did radiation therapy. We did more surgery on him. We eventually had to amputate his leg because the tumor kept coming back. And here's a, he's a big yellow Labrador mix. I'm not sure that he fit the criteria for being the exact weight that he was supposed to be. <laughs> but so we were a little concerned about how he would do without his front leg, but he did great. 
Um, he, it was amazing how, how well he did. He had a prolonged recovery, but he did fine. So cancer, yes, surgery can definitely play a role in, uh, in cancer in, in dogs. There are some tumors that uh, even some of the tumors that they develop around their head and neck, uh, thyroid tumors are a good example. Now, people get thyroid tumors, dogs get thyroid tumors, even cats. But if we catch these tumors early, um, and that's something to impress upon the, the pet owners, is that anytime you feel any kind of lump or anything that just doesn't feel right, have your vet look at it and see what they think. Uh, thyroid tumors, if we catch them early and we are able to get it out, they can live three, four, five years afterwards. So uh, yeah, they can definitely, surgery definitely plays a big role. I just want to reiterate that. I'm also going to say things are more costly when you bring in a medical problem later. And I will say that, you know, the sooner you diagnose something, like if you saw a mass the size of a small pea or the size of an M&M, you want to get it checked by a vet because it's going to cost way less than when you wait until that mass is the size of a softball. Um, so it's going to be a lot more expensive. Same thing with the poisoning pet. And you guys have heard me talk about this on previous episodes of ER Vet. It's always cheaper. The prognosis is always better. The likelihood that your pet's going to survive is way higher when we diagnose a poisoning or a medical problem or an endocrine problem earlier. So when in doubt, you always want to call your veterinarian or your ER vet. You always want to schedule that check for that mass just to make sure it's benign. And please don't wait until it's really advanced before you decide to have it surgically removed. Now, you briefly mentioned before that your dog had to have an amputation. And, you know, I've seen that before with really aggressive types of cancer called osteosarcoma also. Can a dog do okay with just three legs? Or what about a cat? Yeah, they, they can. They really can. I'll preface my remarks by saying, just as you talked about before, how important it is to not let your animal get, become obese. An obese animal would have more difficulty losing a leg than an animal that's normal weight. But really, I would say in general, probably 90 to 90% of the dogs that I've seen, I would say are capable of handling one of their legs being removed. Now, some people, just the thought of that, it, it really puts, they have a hard time accepting that they would put their dog through that. You know, one of the problems we have <laughs> as owners, and I, like you say, we're, we're pet owners too. We go through a lot of these same difficult decisions, but we're the ones that have to decide that the animal's going to have this procedure done. And I think that's what's hard for a lot of owners is that, wow, you're, you're telling me I'm the one that has to decide that my dog's going to lose his leg. And we understand that. We really do. And, and we want people to think about it and listen to what all of us are saying about what could happen, how this could benefit uh, the dog or the cat. And actually cats do even better than dogs. They're amazing. You know, they're so light on their feet. In general, they, they tend to tolerate a rear leg amputation a little bit better than a front leg because they bear less of their total body weight on the rear legs, but they can do fine with a, with a front leg. We have a, after in Bob, after we amputate his leg, we have videos of him in Minnesota. <laughs> That's it was when we were uh, up there. But we have videos of him running around the backyard in the snow on three legs. And uh, I've used that video so many times to convince people that yes, your animal they can be happy, they can play, they can retrieve, they can go for walks, uh, they can do pretty much everything. The only thing I say they definitely can do if they're a male dog. And you remove one of the back legs. They're not going to be able to hike the other leg to urinate. But other than that, they uh, they really can do fine. 
great to hear. There's actually a big movement, and it's called tripod dogs, about how dogs do really well with three legs, especially if it's to save their life because they have cancer. Or uh, my neighbor across the street has a tripod dog because the dog had a really, really severe fracture of their leg and had to have it amputated. I will say the heavier and more obese your dog, the harder it is for them to get up. And it puts a lot more strain on those other three legs, which again is why I want you to keep your dog as skinny as possible. And here's my test for if you know if your Labrador Retriever or your Golden Retriever is in good body condition is when your neighbor or a stranger says, oh, your dog's so skinny. That means your dog is in perfect body condition, okay? (laughs) So if you can just barely see ribs when they're running, you can feel the ribs when you're petting them. They're actually the ideal body weight. Right. All right. We'll continue with this really important topic about surgery right after these messages from our sponsors. Pet Life Radio, the number one pet radio network on the planet, joins forces with iHeartRadio to put the power of your pets in your pocket. Awesome. Download the iHeartRadio app and rock Pet Life Radio on your phone, on your tablet, on your Xbox, in your car. Pet talk, pet tunes, and fun pet times. Pet Life Radio and iHeartRadio. Positively possum. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to ER Venom Pet Life Radio. We've been talking with Dr. Burchard about all things surgery in terms of when to find a veterinary specialist in surgery, how long it takes to train to be a specialist, what types of surgery and how much they can cost, and what we can do to help keep our pets healthy, like keeping them skinnier or being able to diagnose little lumps and bumps earlier and getting it surgically removed and biopsied versus waiting until it's really, really big. Knowing things like if your dog is diagnosed with cancer or your cat was diagnosed with cancer, that sometimes surgery can help remove the bulk of cancer. So we always want to be able to work it up appropriately to see if you can extend your dog or cat's life. Now, I did want to ask, is a dog or cat ever too old to have surgery? And I know a lot of pet owners are worried about the age of their pet. Yeah. And as I've gotten older, I, I've uh, tried to impress upon people the thing that we say as, uh, as veterinarians, and that is that age is not a disease. And I remind people of that for myself because I'm becoming more of a senior citizen. And uh, so the, the really the short answer is that no, they're really never, we should never consider them to be too old to have a, some kind of a surgery done. Sure, we, we take into account the fact that they're older, that, you know, they may be arthritic, it may be harder for them to get back up on all four feet after they've been under anesthesia, or they might have some special needs in terms of their diet or, or just the, the kind of care that they get. But as long as if surgery is indicated in an older dog, as long as the preoperative diagnostic tests look okay, look acceptable, then we should still consider them a good candidate for surgery. And by the preoperative, I mean things like blood work. We always, especially with older dogs, we, we always run a complete panel, a metabolic panel of uh, blood tests to make sure is, are there, is their liver okay, kidneys working okay, blood count is fine, they're, they're not anemic. We check out all those things ahead of time. And um, as long as things check out. And the other thing I always try to impress upon owners and even my students, 
you look at it as risk versus benefit. If the, if the benefits far outweigh the risks, then that's something that we should consider doing. Now, there's times when that's not true, or there's times when maybe it's, it's kind of uh, even between risks and benefits. And that's where a lot of the communication comes in from your local vet or from the specialist. It's just to really spend time with you talking about why it's necessary and what could happen and the potential complications and what we think the bottom line is. Age isn't a disease, but we just want to make sure that you know the pet's as healthy as possible. I oftentimes will also do chest radiographs or chest x-rays just to make sure there's no cancer in the chest before we potentially do an expensive procedure. And I think the biggest thing that you have to be cognizant of a pet owner as a pet owner is that you know, as surgical costs become more expensive, you may pay X amount of money. So a couple thousand dollars for a surgical procedure and the age of your pet may affect that decision on whether or not you want to do that. And I always say you have to make the financial emotional decision on what you want to do, because it's not a wrong decision in some circumstances to euthanize, but you know, it's a personal decision. So work with your veterinarian on that. You know, when I treated my dog's brain tumor, I spent over $10,000. And when it came down to it, I think I crunched the numbers. It ended up being about $35 a day for the number of days that he lived, right? He right. lived 13 months after his brain tumor, but I was really happy with those 13 months and I'd pay it again because I needed that. And to me, 35 to $40 was way cheaper than therapy at that rate. And I was really bonded to that dog. So I needed that extra time, um, but it's a personal decision. So when in doubt, ask your vet. There's a lot of options. And even if euthanasia is one of them because of age or finances, no good veterinarian or veterinary professional is going to judge you on that. So just be aware of that. Last thing I wanted to ask, we talked briefly about pet insurance, but are all surgeries or other costs related to surgery or medical care of your pet, are they covered by all types of pet insurances, do you know? As long as it's not a pre-existing condition, that's the main thing. And um, I've, done, uh, I've done a little bit of consulting with Trupanion, one of the pet insurance companies. My role for them was this very question, and that was, was this a pre-existing condition, in which case the company would not pay for it, or is this something new? And if it is new, then they would cover at least a, a portion of the cost. So that, uh, but yeah, if, if you've had insurance and you've started when they were a healthy little puppy before they got any of these other conditions, it should pay. Of course, every policy is different. Every company is different. But if anything, they should at least pay for a, a percentage, a certain percentage of the cost, which uh, can be very helpful, especially some of these, uh, some of these procedures that are done. A Labrador Retriever, for example, one of the most popular breeds in the country, probably in the world for that matter. As they get older, there's a couple of things that we know that is likely to happen with them. One is that they're probably going to rupture their cruciate ligament in one or both knees. And the other thing is that there's a strong possibility that as they get older, they're going to develop a condition called laryngeal paralysis. I guess what I'm saying is that if you have a breed that has a high chance as they get older of developing a certain type of medical problem that can be expensive. Boy, I'd really consider pet insurance as an option. Thank you so much. Really appreciate all that you do, all that you do to educate pet owners and veterinary professionals, veterinary students out there. Again, really advocate for people to check out Dr. Burchard's book, Their Tales Kept Wagging. 
pets show us how hope, forgiveness, and love prevail. And for those of you guys who don't know, there are a bunch of true stories of pets that he treated over his time as a veterinarian, as a board-certified specialist. And these were pets and dogs and cats with severe medical problems from trauma to cancer to really significant things. And it's just really heartwarming to see from an insider's view what we do on a daily basis as veterinary professionals that help save pets' life. But in the same way, how pets save us, right? As dogs and cats, they really, really bring so much love and hope to us, not only as a pet owner, but even in the ER or the ICU. Dr. Berkshire, where can people find your book? Well, it's uh, available really in all of the uh, online markets. Amazon is uh, is one, and Barnes and Noble, Apple Books, Google, pretty much all of the online book retailers. Uh, it's it's available. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Loved all the stories that you shared in your book and uh, look forward to talking to you one day again. All right. Thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Find me at drjustinelee.com or on Facebook or Instagram at drjustinelee and email me your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time and we want to thank our guests, Dr. Burchard and Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.